Yes, my name is Anil Kanda. I was born and raised in Southern California, but my parents immigrated from India a year before I was born. I'm from the northern uh, state of India, which is called Punjab. Can you say Punjab? Punjab? Good. Do we have any Indian people here? Partial Indian people here? I know we have some. There you go. Okay. Well, you, you are an Indian by faith, my brother. So, But I am glad that you guys are here. I promise you guys something. I want to make a promise to you guys that if you, you go through this entire series, you're going to come out changed. And I'll tell you why. It's not going to be something I do. It's going to be something that God does. And I'm going to make that guarantee based upon the promises of the word of God. Can you say amen to that? By the way, if you hear the word amen or hallelujah, don't be startled. It's, it's not a choir time. When you hear that word amen and or hallelujah, it just simply means I agree. So why don't we say amen? Amen. 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 Very good. Now, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be going through a journal, through a journey with God's word. Now, what's remarkable about these series is that they take place all over the world, not just here in Series California. You're going to find these seminars taking place in India, Pakistan, all over Asia, all over Europe. I actually have a friend who's doing another series in a really big one, actually, that's on TV in New Zealand. But these series take place all over. Even right now as we speak, there are thousands of seminars just like this taking place. And what's exciting about this is, is that you guys get to experience. Now, how many people here have ever been to one of these seminars? Raise your hand. Okay, very good. Now, what you can do is make sure that the people around you who have not been to these seminars, make sure they feel at home. Amen? Okay, very good. Now, how many people here need a Bible or pen or pencil or, or a worksheet? We want to make sure we get these to you. Just raise your hand if you need one, and Elias will pass one out to you. Okay, very good. Wonderful, wonderful. Great. Well, why don't we start with the word of prayer right now, you guys? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this time. And Lord, as we jump into your word, God, we need the Holy Spirit. We can't understand your word without your spirit. Father, we pray and ask that your angels are drawn to this place. And God, you gave a very special promise that if two or three are gathered in your name, there you are amongst us. We just thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, there's another guarantee I'm going to make, okay? The guarantee is this. When we start these presentations, and generally we're going to start them at 7.15, we are going to get you out by 8.15. Amen. Because I know you guys have lives, okay? And so I'm going to do my best to make sure you guys are out here at 8.15, if I should ever go over 8.15, you just take a look at Lily over there. Lily, why don't you raise your hand? And Lily's going to press a red button, and that's just going to drop me through a chute, okay? <laughs> that's at 8.15. All you need to do is just look at her, okay? She'll make sure that I'm, I am done, okay? But the great thing about these seminars is this. Now, if you look in the uh, flyer, it announces just a few nights, but these seminars actually go for a total of three weeks. If you look at the topics we're going to be covering, we're going to be covering Prophecy Star Wars. We're going to be covering Antichrist Finally Revealed. We're going to get into the Mark of the Beast, the Millennium. What happens when you die and why in the world is there so many churches? We're also going to get into Prophecy's Health Plan. And that is one you do not want to miss. And there's plenty of other topics that we're going to cover during this series. What's great about this is that we have two nights off. Two nights. Monday and Thursday. What nights are they? Monday and Thursday. 
Monday and Thursday. No doubt someone's going to show up here Monday night and looking for the, the seminar. It is not going to take place here, okay? But we'll make sure somebody is there at 6.15 and 7.15 to, to direct you to go back home and come back Tuesday and Wednesday. Okay, so what nights do we have off? Mondays and Thursdays. So that means we have a meeting tomorrow night and Sunday night. It's going to be awesome. Tomorrow night, we're going to get into the end of the world. Is it fear or is it really near? Then Sunday, we're going to get into prophecy, Star Wars. In other words, if God is so good, why is the world so bad? And that is one you do not want to miss. We're going to be talking about what the Bible says about the fall of Lucifer. And now, when it comes to these seminars, I just need two things from you. All right? Number one, I'm going to need your Bible. So if you don't have a Bible, we got one for you. We can help you with that. And the second thing I'm going to do is you're going to need your brain. That's something I can't help you with. Okay? And so you've got to do your best. This is not something where I just communicate truth to you and you walk away and you think to yourself, well, that was really great. I want you to check out all the things that I talk to you about. Because here's the thing about truth. The more you examine truth, the more truthful truth is. I want to say that one more time. The more you examine truth, the more truthful truth is. And the remarkable thing about that is this, is that when you take these truths that we're going to talk about, you can go home, you can just type in whoop, whoop, whoop in your internet, you can get onto Google homepage and type up some of these topics, and you're going to find all the evidence for the things that we're going to talk about. Everything that we're going to talk about comes straight from the Word of God. Can you say amen to that? And here's the thing we need to understand. The truth is the most precious thing in the world to us. Amen? Especially in the day and age when there's a lot of deception, a lot of lies, a, a lot of facade that is taking place. People are hungering and thirsting for that which is true. You know, Winston Churchill said something long time ago, something very, very important. He said this, the truth is the most important thing in the world. It is so important, it's often protected by a bodyguard of lies. It's the most important thing to us. And we need to discover what truth is. Amen? All right. Now, when it comes to this, you're going to find out that we're going to talk about a whole bunch of things. But tonight is going to be a very interesting night. We're going to jump into the Word of God. But, you know, when you look out into the world, you get your iPhones, you get your iPads, and you get all sorts of instruments, and you take a look at that, and you can access news very rapidly. Now, how many people today check the front page Raise your hand if you check the front page today. Okay, three people. Okay, now we're going to work on that because we're going to make sure that we are educated about what's happening in our world. Amen? But you know what's interesting is that just about 50, 60 years ago, if you wanted to find out some information, what was happening all the way in Asia and Europe, sometimes it would take a few days. These days, when you go onto the internet, when you look onto Google front page or MSNBC and you try to find out what the news is, you can find it taking place even as you are watching the news. Even as you're watching the news. We're living in a world today where news is extremely fast and extremely accessible. You look at some of the news, the top headlines these days. No joke, these are some of the top headlines, okay? I just took a good look at these just the last few months, and these are some of the top headlines. You'll find out that you always hear things about the worst solar storm that's predicted in years. Has anybody ever heard of the solar storms that are taking place even now as we speak? Okay, very good. There is an alarming threat by not just some of these scientists that are on the fringe, but actually NASA scientists that are saying some very cautious statements. They're saying things like, you've got to be careful because we're about to have a solar storm. 
Now, solar storms normally don't affect humans, but they do affect the technology that humans do use. You'll find, you'll find headlines like these. These are actual headlines. Massive solar storms is only likely to get worse over the next year, and that's from a NASA deputy project director. Over and over again, the word is coming out that something big is about to take place, that our sun is doing some unusual things. You'll also find out just recently, actually this was in the month of January of this year, you have the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, who are basically a coalition of, of physicists and all sorts of different kinds of scientists. They got together, this was actually done during World War II through Albert Einstein, and they developed this coalition called the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. And what they did is they developed a clock. They developed a what? A clock. And the name of this clock is called the Doomsday Clock. It's actually a legitimate clock. And what they do occasionally, they have a news, uh, sort of a, uh, what you want to call a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A conference. Very good. Thank you, Glenn. That's why you're there. And oftentimes, they'll invite the media to come on out and all sorts of educated people and scientists, and they'll say, we are going to actually move the doomsday clock a minute closer to midnight. These are well-known scientists. And you know what they did in the month of, month of January of this year? They actually moved the doomsday clock one minute closer to midnight, signaling that when the clock finally hits midnight, the world is going to be in catastrophe. And it's based upon what's happening in the Middle East. It's based upon what's happening in our climate. It's based upon what's happening with the world and nuclear warheads and all sorts of developments happening all over the world. And based upon what the, what the conditions are is how they determine whether or not that clock goes closer to midnight or further away. The closer it is to midnight, the more danger Earth is. And so they just announced in January that they are a minute closer to midnight. So right now, I believe, the clock stands five minutes before midnight. Five minutes before midnight. Now, these aren't Christian people. These aren't Bible-believing uh, religious zealots who are talking about the end of the world. These are, are very trained, educated scientists that are saying something is very wrong with our world today. Even they themselves are noticing these things. And this is very important because we need to go to God's word because God's word has the answer. Can you say amen to that? You look at our national debt, for example. By the way, this is not the current debt. Does anybody here know what the uh, current estimate is of our debt, our national debt right now? Fifteen trillion. It's actually higher than fifteen trillion. I actually put this number up. I'm going to show this number to you, okay? This was a number based upon, I think it was about a week ago, okay? I actually stopped looking on the website for the national debt clock because all the numbers kept calculating higher and higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. So these were the numbers. Here we go. 15 trillion, 529 billion, 147 million, 964 $39.59. And you want to know what your share is? Here's your share based upon a week ago. You owe $49,481 to this United States. Now, what is scary is this. I'm going to challenge you. When you get home, I want you to look at the national debt clock, and you're not going to find a still number. The number keeps getting higher and higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. You're going to get actually very disturbed after a few minutes, and you're going to shut it off. That's what happened to me. Folks, we're living in a world today where a lot of people are saying, what is wrong with our economy? Our economy is no longer stable. Now, you hear new reports based upon some reports that will come in about our job, our job rates and all sorts of the, the oil crisis, and it determines our national debt. 
But what's happening is this. The new normal is instability. The new normal is instability in our financial markets. And a lot of people are asking the question, when is all this just going to come to a, just to a, a final cataclysmic event? When is it just going to break out in full anarchy? A lot of people are asking the question, what, when is it going to take place when the end of the world finally comes? When the end of the world finally comes. You go out to the, to the grocery store and you're going to find all sorts of headlines on the newspapers, the magazines. You'll find out all sorts of things about what's happening into our world. And they're using a lot of headlines that people are interested in. In fact, did you know that Hollywood actually puts out post or apocalyptic movies during the time of September? Does anybody know why? Because of 9-11. Did you know that Hollywood actually hones in on the paranoia of American society and actually will place movies at certain times when there's a higher sense of, of caution? Now, ever since 9-11, a lot of people, when you get to September, a lot of people begin to just think about 9-11 and about the, the potential terrorist threat. And so what happens, Hollywood actually capitalizes on those times and puts out movies that have to do with worldwide destruction. Even Hollywood is cashing in on this. But is something wrong with our planet? Is all those doomsday and all those people who stand out, on, stand out on the corners with those end of the world signs, is there something to what they're saying? Or these preachers who are standing up and saying, the world is going to end May 21st, 2011. By the way, I baptized the, son, the grandson of that individual. He actually... He actually was very bent that the world was going to end during that time. And a lot of people began to spend millions of dollars to put out the advertisement that the end of the world is coming. But folks, is the end of the world coming? Does the Bible actually have something to say about the times that we're living in? Or is it just fear? Is it just paranoia? Is it just some people wanting to cash in on the times and the unusual things that are taking place in our world? Well, I believe God's word has the answer. Amen? But... It's very interesting that before we go to God's word, we need to examine a few things. We need to make sure that this book is very reliable. Because a lot of people will say, wait a second, what if I don't believe the Bible? What about all those errors in the Bible and all those contradictions in the Bible? Can we actually trust the word of God? My grandma used to throw the Bible at me. Now, my grandma never did because she was a Hindu. But some people say things like that. They'll say things like, you know what, I grew up with somebody just smashing the Bible over my head. I grew up with all those, those, those really hatred-filled Christians, and they were saying all sorts of things by other people. And I don't want nothing to do with the Word of God. Folks, I want you to give it a new shot. I want you to give it a chance again. And you're going to find out that the Bible is more than just a book. It's a special revelation where God is speaking to his people, and he is saying to them, I love you. These are very special times, and God wants to make himself known to you like never before. And that's why you're here. I don't believe it's by coincidence or by chance. I believe that God has purpose that you should be here today. Now, can we trust the word of God? Well, you know what? I took an argumentation class not too long ago, and the four things that we learn when it comes to evaluating something is that truth has to be clear, it has to be accurate, it has to be relevant, and it has to be sufficient. One of the great things about this seminar is, as I said before, you're going to be able to take these Bible truths and you're going to be able to check it out for yourself. I'm going to say a few words to you all the time. Here are the words, okay? Check it out. Now let's say it together. Check it out. Very, very good. Okay. Can we trust the Word of God? 
What's very interesting, in 1947, there was a young Bedouin shepherd boy who was throwing a rock into some caves. And all of a sudden, he heard a crash. He walked right into that cave, and what did he discover? He discovered earthen clay jars that actually had papyrus scrolls in them. He took it to his father, and his father raced to the local archaeologist. And what did they discover? They discovered 8,000 documents of the Old Testament. They carbon dated them, and they were almost about 2,000 years old. And you know what's really awesome about that? They've actually discovered fragments of the New Testament in there as well. Portions of the Gospel of Mark that are actually part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, a lot of people before 1947 begin to say things like this. Wait a second. The Bible has been translated over and over and over again. How are we going to trust that this is the same Bible that Jesus used? How are we going to know that this is the same scriptures that Jesus and his disciples use? Well, the great thing is, before 1947, you would not be able to make that type of decision. But ever since 1947, scholars have fully examined the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they have compared it to today's Bible, modern translation, accurate translations, and they have found just a very, very minute percent of error, just a very minute percent of error, which tells you something. God preserves his word. Can you say amen to that? The same Bible that you have in your hands, and by the way, if you want to bring another Bible, go ahead and bring whatever translation you want. You're going to see that these truths go throughout all scripture. Amen? What else can we learn? What else can we, why is it that we can trust the word of God? Well, watch what this man says, Dr. Byron Wood. He was an archaeologist. He says, probably the Dead Sea Scrolls have had the greatest biblical impact. They have provided Old Testament manuscripts approximately 1,000 years older than our previously oldest manuscripts. The Dead Sea Scrolls have demonstrated that the Old Testament was accurately transmitted during this interval. Can you say amen to that? We can trust the Word of God. What else can we learn? Well, you also learn that this, is, this actually dates much older than any manuscripts. Well, what are these? These are called the Silver Scrolls. And what they contain are portions of a priest's prayer that was found in number six, or Numbers chapter 6. And look what it says. This Silver Scroll contains the priestly blessing of Numbers chapter 6. Dates hundreds of years before the oldest known copy of any biblical manuscript. In 1979, Israeli archaeologist Gabriel Barkay discovered the silver amulets in a burial chamber while excavating in Ketef Hinnom, a section of the Hinnom Valley. These scrolls verified the accuracy of the Word of God. Can you say amen to that? Over and over again, the skeptics have been duped. Over and over again, the unbelievers have just been duped based upon the evidence of the word of God. You know what one archaeologist said? He said this, not only has archaeology confirmed the scriptures, but the Bible has actually been a legitimate source to discover where archaeology is located as well. And it's been proven over and over again, the word of God is something you can trust. What else has been proven? Hazar, the largest city in Canaan, was mentioned in the Bible over and over again. Sixteen documents have been discovered ranging from letters to court records attesting to its role during Bronze Age Canaan. You know what's really great about the Bible? The Bible is a real book about real people in real places doing real things. It's different from any old religious books or mythological books. You know, I grew up reading a lot of Hindu mythology books. The thing is, you can't verify a lot of those cities. You can't verify a lot of those people because they never existed. But the great thing about the Word of God is that it's a real book that has real people with real events. 
And you're able to take the Bible and put it pro forma over history and find out that it is very, very accurate. Can you say amen to that? Well, what else has been proven? Archaeology confirms the identification of the site as Ekron, one of the five Philistine capital cities mentioned in the Bible. Its inscription is unique because it contains the name of a biblical city and five of its rulers, including Ashish. Now, what's interesting is that 1 Samuel talks about this king, and he was one of the five rulers of the Philistine area. The Bible is confirmed over and over and over again. Well, what else? This clay prism. This clay prism contains Assyrian inscriptions in cuneiform writing that validates the biblical account regarding Sargon and his capture of the northern kingdom in Israel in 722 B.C., which is exactly what the book of Isaiah talks about. Over and over again, the scriptures have been confirmed that this is a book we can trust. Well, what else has been proven? You'll find out in 1961, Italian archaeologists actually discovered, located right on this brick wall, an inscription of Pontius Pilate. Now, what book does Pontius Pilate appear in? Does anybody know? He appears in the four Gospels. He was the Roman governor that led to the crucifixion of Jesus. Remember what I said? The Bible is a real book about real people that had real experiences with God. And this is why we can trust the Word of God. Bible prophecy verifies scripture's reliability more than any other evidence available. Through prophecy, God reveals that which is unattainable to mankind, i.e. the future. And since that is impenetrable, it is impossible to be fully grasped. However, by God's accurate revealing and fulfilling through his word future events, confidence in him is gained and he is shown to be what he has always been, an all-powerful and all-loving God. Can you say amen to that? You know what's really interesting about Bible prophecy is this. While historians can look at the past and verify things of Scripture, prophecy talks about things that no one knows about. It talks about things in the future. Things in the future. Things that are taking place even now as we speak. And I really believe that God wants you to understand the times that we're living in. Can you say amen to that? Look what Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 10 says. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the what? Beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. The Bible states that one of the identification marks of God is that he has the ability to tell us what the future holds. This is something that is impenetrable and unattainable to anybody in this world. We may be able to know what's going to happen in the next second or the next few seconds, but God can tell us what's going to happen for the next few years. And this is extremely important why we need to study God's word. Can you say amen to that? Now, here's a few basics we need to understand about Bible prophecy. We're not going to stand on the corner here with, that, with a big old sign that says, End of the world, repent, or you will burn. No, no, no. We need to understand some basics about Bible prophecy found in the scriptures themselves. Okay? Well, let's take a good look at what some of these basics are. And by the way, don't forget to write these down in your sheet so you have this information for later. Bible prophecy basic, number one, 2 Peter chapter 1, found in verse 21. And watch what the Bible says right here. This is awesome. No prophecy of scripture is of any, what's those next two words? Private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
The author of Bible prophecy is not mankind. The author of Bible prophecy is God himself. Is God himself. So the first thing we need to understand about Bible prophecy is that it is no there's no private interpretation. In other words, you don't got Joe Schmo over here saying, well, this is what Bible prophecy teaches. And then you got, you know, Cindy Lewis over here. And by the way, I hope there's no one named by the name of Cindy Lewis who's saying this is what Bible prophecy teaches. There's only one truth. Can you say amen to that? By the way, what's two plus two? Are you sure? Well, of course, two plus two is four, okay? Two plus two is four. How many right answers are there? One. Now, how many wrong answers? Oh, there's an infinite amount of wrong answers. But guess what? There's one right answer. And folks, I believe God's word has those right answers. Amen? First thing we need to understand is that scripture is of no private interpretation. God himself is the author. Well, what's another basic of Bible prophecy? By the way, where are you getting this information? From the Bible. I'm not coming up with this stuff on my own. I'm simply presenting to you what the scriptures are already teaching. What's Bible prophecy basic number two? 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3. This is awesome. But he who prophesies speaks, now pay attention to this, edification, exhortation, and what's that next word? Comfort. Comfort. Now wait just a second. The purpose of prophecy is to bring comfort? That's exactly what the Bible teaches. The purpose of prophecy is to bring comfort and building up of mankind. That's what Bible prophecy teaches and does. What else? Bible prophecy basic number three, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 20 through 21. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things and hold fast to which is what? Good. The Bible calls us to test out prophecies. In other words, to examine what the Bible is teaching and to compare it with the scriptures. Okay? Well, what's another Bible prophecy basic number four? Here it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. Now watch this. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with what? Spiritual. The way you test out scripture is with? With scripture. Amen. Very good. And what you're going to find in this Bible Prophecy Center is that, or seminar, we're not going to be just looking at one verse off in the corner of the Bible. You're going to see that all truth is throughout all of scripture. I promise you this. One of the great things about this truth that we're going to present during this seminar is that you're going to find that the entire scriptures are loaded with them. We're not trying to build a teaching or a doctrine based upon one verse. You're going to see it throughout all of scripture. You know, I had a teacher and he used to say this to me all the time. Very famous saying. He used to say this. A text taken out of context can become a pretext. A text taken out of context can become a pretext. A lot of people these days will take one scripture verse and they'll build an entire teaching based upon one scripture verse. But what we're going to find throughout this seminar is that scripture will be met with more scripture, will be met with more scripture, that you'll see that it is consistent throughout all of the Bible. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Very good. Now the great thing about the Bible, there are two special books in the scriptures. Now, the entire scriptures are all important, but there's two special books. One is called the book of Daniel, and the other is called the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a book we're going to get into. The book of Revelation is the sequel, and the book of Daniel is the prequel. 
The book of Daniel is the prequel, and the book of Revelation is the sequel. Both are a hand-in-glove fit, which comes together very perfectly, just like a man and woman, they become one. What you're going to discover about the books of Daniel and Revelation is that when you put those two books together, it forms one beautiful picture of God. One beautiful picture of God. And you're going to see that soon. Look what the Bible says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Daniel shut up the words and sealed the book until the end of time. Until the time of the end. Now, why this is very interesting? This is at the last chapter in the book of Daniel. I want you to see the command that's given to Daniel. Daniel shut up the words and sealed the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now, notice this. This is very important. Don't miss this point. The book of Daniel will not be understood until the what? time of the end. Did you know it wasn't until the late 1800s that people really began to understand the book of Daniel? Prior to that time, a lot of people like Martin Luther said, we don't know what to do with the book of Daniel and Revelation. But what's interesting about the book of Daniel, God tells Daniel, look, no one's going to understand this book until the time of the end. And what is awesome is this book is now being understood by many people all over the world. And I believe God wants you to understand the book of Daniel. And that's what we're going to look into right now. We're going to look at a very special prophecy. There was a wise king. He wasn't wise in the beginning. He was actually very treacherous and very evil and a, and a very wicked ruler. And his name was King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar is actually well known in the archaeology world. The book of Daniel makes him a primary character in the book. Now watch what happens. Actually, this took place in Time Magazine, 1990. Saddam actually had himself photographed long ago in a replica of the war chariot of Nebuchadnezzar. He was actually a big fan of Nebuchadnezzar, and he actually wanted to rebuild the walls of Babylon, wanted to actually rebuild the palace of Babylon and the hanging gardens of Babylon. It was his hero. Unfortunately, Saddam Hussein didn't live to see any of that happen. But what's very interesting is this. Archaeology talks so much about this king, Nebuchadnezzar, that's found in the book of Daniel. Watch this. Modern research has shown that Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest king that Babylon produced, having an enormous command of human labor and all of the ruins that are actually found in Babylon today in almost countless profusion cover the land are composed of bricks stamped with his name. His inscriptions give an account of the works which he constructed in Babylon, illustrating the great boast, is this not great Babylon which I have built? What's interesting is that archaeology, look at all the bricks that are found over the area that once was known as Babylon, that's where Iraq is, and what they discover is all these bricks that had the inscription of King Nebuchadnezzar's boast, his title, and his territory. Oftentimes in these bricks, what you'll find out is that it'll say things like King Nebuchadnezzar, ruler over all earth, and the builder of Babylon and all the wonderful provinces of Babylon. And you'll find these great boasts and all these accolades of Nebuchadnezzar found in those or on those bricks. One tablet actually records that Nebuchadnezzar encamped against the city of Judah. And on the second day of the month, Adaro, he seized the city, captured the king. He appointed there a king of his heart, received its heavy tribute, and sent it to Babylon, which agrees perfectly with the biblical record. And what you'll find in 2 Kings chapter 24, it describes this event taking place. The king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, took him, talking about King Jehoiakim, prisoner. He carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord, and he actually set Jehoiakim's uncle in place. 
exactly with what the tablet recorded. We actually have in archaeology mostly all of the years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign except for a certain seven years. And you know why that's very remarkable? Because when you study the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 4, you'll discover that there are certain seven years that became very unusual for Nebuchadnezzar. It's remarkable. When you take a good look at what history shows and what the Bible shows, you'll find that it is perfectly matched. Can you say amen to that? Well, let's talk about this king. Let's get into what the Bible teaches about this king, Nebuchadnezzar, and something strange that took place. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1, watch what the Bible says. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Now, how many people here have ever woke up, and you remember just for a couple seconds this dream, and you're telling yourself, I'm going to call my friend up and tell him about this dream, but then as soon as you get up, all of a sudden you think to yourself, now what happened to that dream? Now, here's the thing about my life. Let me just tell you about my dreams. I have plots in my dreams, okay? I have advanced, dramatic plots in my dream. It's like a Hollywood movie every night in my mind, okay? And, and sometimes I wake up and I think to myself, how in the world did I come up with that? But that's what's so awesome about the human brain. But King Nebuchadnezzar, in, in the midst of his reigning, he woke up one night and he had this dream. And the dream began to fade away. And all of a sudden, his sleep left him, and he couldn't go back to sleep. And this dream troubled him over and over again. And every night, he kept having this dream. And he knew that there was something unusual about this dream, but he could not remember it. Next, enter in Daniel. Daniel was actually one of the Hebrew captives that were taken all the way over to Babylon. Now, Daniel was part of a group of educated people called the wise men of Babylon. The wise men of Babylon. The king gave the command to call all the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. This king wanted to discover what the dream was. So he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to call Harry Potter. I'm going to call all the Jedi Knights. We're going to bring them all together. And what they're going to do is they're going to tell me my dreams. So all those people, they come together, and King Nebuchadnezzar says to them, all right, gentlemen, I have a request for you. And they said, speak, king. And he says... I want you to tell me about my dream last night. I've been having it every single night. And so they said, <clears throat> okay, well, we took a class in psychology. We know a little bit about Sigmund Freud. So they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, all right, why don't you tell us the dream and we'll tell you the interpretation. Well, this king was not duped by these men. Instantly, he got angry. And he made a command, destroy all the wise men in Babylon. They're useless to me. They don't do anything for me, and they're worthless to me. And so he sent out this command to kill all the wise men of Babylon. He was done with all the educated people of the realm. But there was a Hebrew captive by the name of Daniel who was part of those educated men. He was not part of that group that originally came to the king. However, the command went out, death to all the wise men, death to all the educated men, death to all the magicians and astrologers and sorcerers and Chaldeans. And so all the soldiers began to go throughout all of Babylon, slaughtering all the wise men. Well, one man, his name was Daniel, they came to Daniel and they said, Daniel, you need to come out. We're putting it into your life. And Daniel says, whoa, whoa, wait just a second. I want to talk to the king. And you can read more about it tonight when you go home. Daniel chapter 2. So Daniel then goes to the king and he says, All right, king, this is what I have to you. Give me one night, just one day, 
and I'm going to tell you what that dream is, and then I'm going to tell you the interpretation. Now, Daniel was no master of dreams. He was not somebody who, who could tell a king what his dreams were. Imagine if I came to you one day and I said, okay, that's a loud sneeze, okay. <laughs> Excuse me, bless you. Sorry to embarrass you. I, you know what, when I actually sneeze, I sound like a martial artist. I'll be like, hiya! So, you're okay. You're okay. You know what's very interesting about Daniel, okay? Now imagine this. Somebody came up to you one day and they said, all right, I'm going to give you a million dollars. You say, okay, wonderful. What do I have to do? I want you to tell me what I dreamed about last night. And then you think to yourself, maybe he said that wrong. Okay, tell me your dream. And the man says to you, that's the problem. You have to tell me what I dreamed about last night. And then you have to give me the interpretation. Now you would think to yourself, well, that's impossible. Who would know something like that? Well, here's the remarkable thing. This was a trial that God had allowed and actually produced himself so that he could enter into the life of these Babylonians. So Daniel goes to the king and he says, king, give me one day. Give me one day. Now watch what the Bible says in Daniel chapter 2, verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this what? Secret. This secret. So Daniel goes home and he wakes up his friends. He wakes up Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and he says, okay, you guys, I need you guys to wake up. We need to pray. We need to pray. And they said, why? He says, because our lives are on the line. We need to find out what the answer is to King Nebuchadnezzar's problem. He had a dream, and they said to Daniel, well, what do you think that dream was? And he said, I don't know. And that's why they began to pray. You know what's very interesting? Whenever you're brought into a problem, into a trial, into a situation when it seems that there is no solution, that is the time to pray. Can you say amen to that? In every difficulty, we are to see a call to prayer. I want to say that one more time. In every difficulty, we are to see a call to prayer. And if you're somebody tonight who needs prayer, after these meetings are over, I want you to see Lily, and we'll have a, just a small prayer session for you, okay? Well, Daniel comes back, and he discovers what that dream is. He not only discovers what that dream is, but he also reveals, it is also revealed to him the interpretation of that dream. And so he goes to King Nebuchadnezzar and he says, King Nebuchadnezzar, there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. Daniel didn't take credit for himself and said, well, King, I came up with that dream and I came up with this interpretation. No, no, no. That's what all the astrologers and wise men and Chaldeans were all about. But Daniel was of a different stock. He was of a different character. And he says, King, the Lord has shown me what this dream is. And you can imagine King Nebuchadnezzar right there on the edge of his seat. His mouth is ready to drop. He's wanting to know if this young man, Daniel, if this young man actually has the answer to his problem, that actually has the solution. He knew there was something already different about Daniel based upon Daniel chapter 1, but he just wonders, is there something to this? Does Daniel actually know something? And so he's there on the edge of his seat. And watch as Daniel begins to reveal the dream. He says, King, what you were watching is this, a great image. Watch what Daniel 2 verse 31 says. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image or a great statue or figure. 
This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, what you saw was this gigantic statue, and its head was made of gold, its chest was made of silver, its belly was made of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet were made out of iron and clay. And you can imagine all of a sudden it comes right back to Nebuchadnezzar's mind. And he remembers very perfectly, that's the dream. Now you imagine that point, he's thinking to himself, well, what's it mean? It seems to be very supernatural. It keeps happening every single night. Daniel, is there something to this dream? And now this is the interpretation. And why is this very important to us? Because when you read Daniel chapter 2, God tells Daniel, and Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, the dream is for the last days. What he was showing Nebuchadnezzar was a glimpse of the future and the end of mankind on earth. He was revealing to Daniel, to Nebuchadnezzar, the future of humanity. This is why the book of Daniel is so important to us, and this is why the book of Daniel was not revealed until the time of the end, the times that we're now living in. We don't know the day or hour, but we can know the time. We can know when things are happening all around us that something's up. And folks, even people who aren't religious know something's up. Well, what was it? What was it, Daniel? What does it mean? Daniel continues with the dream, and he says, there's one more thing I have to tell you. You're watching this giant statue, and all of a sudden, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 34, a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet. And Daniel's just explaining these to him, and Nebuchadnezzar's just on the edge of his seat, and you can just imagine just this whole thing just coming together for Nebuchadnezzar, and he's waiting for the interpretation. What's the interpretation? Daniel proceeds, Daniel chapter 2, verse 38. You, Dan, you are this head of gold. What God had showed Daniel, who explained to Nebuchadnezzar, was that this giant statue was actually a timeline. It was a what? Timeline. And each period was selected, and it represented a medal. The head of gold represented the kingdom of Babylon. And it was a fitting, a fitting symbol of what Babylon was. Actually, Babylon was known as the city of gold. Scholars have actually looked and done excavations on the city of Babylon. Even the Bible calls Babylon the city of gold. The great temple of Marduk was the most renowned sanctuary in all the Euphrates Valley. It contained a golden image of Baal, a golden table, which together weighed not less than 50,000 pounds. At the top were golden images of Baal and Ishtar, two golden lions, a golden table 40 feet long and 15 feet wide, a human figure of solid gold 18 feet high. Truly Babylon was the city of gold. When Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, he said, Daniel, he said, Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold represents your empire, the empire of Babylon. Now you can just imagine, wow, what a fitting representation of what Babylon was, the city of gold. But wait, 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 there was more to the story. There was more to the story. You actually find some more information about Babylon. This is gold made simple by Jack Wagon. He says this, Babylonians, they often wandered to find out gold in different places. The Babylonians accumulated such an amount of gold, they have no other example in human history. Gold was a fitting representation of Babylon. Okay, but what was next? 
Look what Daniel chapter 2, verse 39 says. After you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. And it was represented by the silver chest. And sure enough, Babylon came to an end. Babylon was conquered by the Medes and the Persian Empire. And that went from 539 B.C. all the way to 331 B.C. God predicted that Babylon would come to an end in its world reigning power. And sure enough, it did. Another nation came on the scene, the nation of the Medes and the Persians, and they conquered the Babylonians. In fact, what you'll discover is that the Bible predicted the fall of Babylon through a man by the name of Cyrus. The Bible says in Isaiah 45, verse 1, Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, so the gates will not be shut. And why was that extremely important? Because when Cyrus, the Persian, actually invaded Babylon, the city, watch this, actually look at the words of Herodias, the historian, Cyrus had previously caused the Polycopus, a canal which ran west of the city, carried off the water of the Euphrates to be cleared out in order to turn the river into it, which by his means was rendered so shallow that his soldiers were able to penetrate along its bed into the city. Babylon was a marvelous city to actually have 75 feet thickness of walls. They had a river that actually went through it. When Cyrus the Persian was actually besieging the city, he had no way into the city except through the river. His men began to dig and they actually diverted the river away and they went through the canal and normally there would be gates that would be shut that wouldn't allow anybody to pass through the canal. But for some unusual reason, the gates were open exactly what the Bible said would take place, and sure enough, Cyrus entered into Babylon and conquered Babylon. Conquered Babylon. But Daniel 2, verse 39, Daniel continues, and he says, but then another, a third kingdom of bronze. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, guess what? That kingdom that came after Babylon would eventually be conquered by another kingdom, a kingdom of bronze. And sure enough, you know who conquered the Medes and the Persians? It was the Grecians. And you know who led the Grecians? Alexander the Great. And they actually used bronze weaponry, bronze shield. They actually coated their ships with bronze metal as well. Bronze was a fitting representation of the nation of Greece. The Grecians conquered the Medes and the Persians. But guess what? There was more to the story. But before we go there, let's take a little look, a little more information about Alexander the Great. This is actually written by Iranian, The Campaigns of Alexander. I am persuaded that there is no nation, city, or people then in being where his name did not reach. For which reason, whatever origin he might boast of or claim to be himself, he actually claimed to be the son of Achilles, there seems to be, have been some divine hand proceeding over his birth and his actions as well. It was very remarkable how Alexander the Great, at such a young age, went through and just overwhelming all the other, all the other nations. And scholars look back at it and they said it was so remarkable how Alexander the Great with such a small army just conquered all these other nations. By the way, Alexander the Great actually stopped in India, left over a million men there. You know, it's very remarkable. This is just a side fact. He left over a million men in Punjab, India. It's one of the only places in India where the men, actually that's the region I come from, they actually have colored eyes and they tend to be taller than the rest of the other Indians. Most taller Indians are Punjab Indians. Why is that very interesting? Because there is a certain disease called thalamacea. It's like a blood disease. It appears in northern India. It appears in one other place as well. Europe, where the Grecians were 
as well. They connect that to that. Now watch this. This is very remarkable. When Alexander the Great began to conquer all the nations, he came to Israel. He came to Israel. Now Alexander the Great was a Grecian, right? He spoke Greek. He came to Israel. Now watch what Josephus talks about. When the book of Daniel was showed him, talking about Alexander, the actually priest came out and actually showed Alexander the Great the book of Daniel, and they said, you were prophesied to come. Watch what happens. Wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed that himself was the person intended, and he was then glad. He dismissed the multitude for the present, but the next day he called to them to him and bathed him, ask what favors they pleased of him. In fact, do you know where we get the Greek Testament of the Scriptures, the Septuagint? It came about during this time. Alexander the Great, when he showed up in Israel, he was so surprised when the priest came out and said, we knew you were to come by the book of Daniel. He was so surprised by it, he actually commanded 70 scholars, it's called the Septuagint, the version of the 70, they came together and they began to translate the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek scriptures. Those were the same scriptures Jesus was using. That's how the Greek scriptures came about. It came about because of what Alexander the Great actually commanded when he came into Israel and was so blown away by prophecies talking about him. Can you say amen to that? Well, how about those legs of iron? Sounds like a workout video. Daniel chapter 2, verse 40. And the fourth kingdom will be strong as iron. And sure enough, you know who conquered the Grecians? It was the Romans. And guess what? Iron was a fitting symbol of that nation. They used iron weaponry. They use iron swords. They use iron in actually their boats as well. It was actually a Roman governor that conquered, that actually crucified Jesus. It was Roman soldiers that put Jesus on a Roman cross with Roman nails. Rome was the next empire that showed up that actually conquered the Grecians. And what's very interesting about that as well is that when God began to describe the statue that was given to Babylon, he describes the head of gold, he described the, the chest of silver, the belly of bronze, the legs of iron. And what you discover is that the metal is getting significantly of less value. What was he talking about? He was describing the conditions of the world would get more and more worse. More and more base. And sure enough, that's what's happened. About 30, 40 years ago, you just imagine, just imagine what television was like about 30, 40 years ago, right? Now imagine what television is like now. I mean, people would just utterly scream if they knew what was on TV. What's it doing? The Bible is describing the condition of the world and what's happening in the hearts of mankind. What's happening in the hearts of mankind? This was actually another theologian who died around A.D. 236, who would have lived during the time of Rome. He understood this prophecy. Look what he said. Rejoice, blessed Daniel. Thou hast not been in error. Already the iron rules. Even he knew what was happening. Even the reformers that were, that were alive during the Dark Ages knew what the book of Daniel was talking about in its earlier chapters. Not the later chapters, in its earlier chapters. They could see what was happening in the world. Folks, the Bible does not lie. Amen? This is actually written by Edward Gibbons. The arms of the Republic are always victorious in war. Talking about Rome. And the images of gold or silver or brass that might serve to represent the nations and their kings were successful, successively broken by the iron monarchy of what? 
Rome. And sure enough, you go out into any history book, you'll find out the empire of Babylon conquered the world. Then Babylon was conquered by the Medes and the Persians. Then the Medes and the Persians were conquered by the Grecians. The Grecians were conquered by the Rome. But guess what? There was more to the story, wasn't there? Wasn't there more to this statue? Yes, there was. Yes, there was. Daniel chapter 2, verse 43. Watch what the Bible says right here. It's very remarkable. The kingdom shall be divided. It was talking about that final metal. It was that metal, that, that iron that was mixed with clay. Very interesting. Much different than the rest of the statue. The representation that was found in that final phase of that statue would be iron mixed with clay. And the interpretation was the kingdom shall be divided. And sure enough, still to this day, our world, ever since Rome, remains divided. There is no more world empire. There are coalitions that exist. There are allied powers that exist. But there is no more a world reigning empire that has conquered the much then known world. None of that exists. Exactly what the book of Daniel said would take place. And it has taken place after Rome. The feet of iron mixed with clay would represent the kingdom and that it would be divided. And what you find in history, you find that when Rome was actually broken up, Rome actually broke up into ten different tribes. And many of those tribes still exist today, except for three of them. Broken up by the invasion of the barbaric tribes of Europe, the Western Roman Empire was overrun at last. Out of its ruin emerged the nations of the modern Europe. Saxons, the English, the Franks, the French, the Alemanni, the German, the Burgundians, the Swiss, the Lombards, the Italians, the Visigoths, the Spanish, and the Suevi, the Portuguese, and the Vandals, the Ostrogoths, and the Heruli were actually vanquished by the papacy power in the early 500s. What you find is that the nations of Europe are the remnant of the tribes how when Rome was divided. And sure enough, the world still remains divided to this day. But there was more to the story. What you're also going to discover about this divided face, this world we now live in, watch what the Bible says. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay. You ever heard of Chiron? Neither have I because it doesn't exist. <laughs> right? Iron does not mix with clay. And what the Bible talks about is that at the very end, there will no longer be this, this one reigning world empire. You know what's very interesting? A lot of skeptics actually look at the book of Daniel, and they see how accurate it is describing Babylon and Medio persia and Greece and Rome and the current world conditions. And you know what they say? They are so blown away with it. They have nothing. They have no disagreement against the actual interpretation. What they have the disagreement with is they say this. Well, it must have been written later. There is no way the book of Daniel could have predicted accurately. But here's the remarkable thing is, wherever you place the book of Daniel, Daniel is still taking place as we speak. It is still taking place as we speak. Anyone who questions the time, and by the way, Jesus actually confirmed Daniel to be a prophet. Read Matthew chapter 24. He says, whereby you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet. He confirms that Daniel is a prophet. And there's a lot of evidence to show that Daniel was a legitimate prophet that lived during the time of Babylon. What you'll find is during those times, after Rome, a lot of uh, rulers said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to try to combine the world together. And sure enough, through marriage, they attempted to bring about unification and alliances, but they failed over and over again. What you'll find is World War I actually took place because of a disagreement between family. And what you'll find is that actually Charles II of Spain was actually committing, I don't want you to call it incest, that's what you call it. He was actually marrying his cousin. He was trying to form an alliance. 
But because everyone was so related in their attempts to bring about an alliance, that their, 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 their attempts to, to bring these alliances through marriages would utterly fail over and over again. And that's what Daniel 2 says, that they will seek to mingle with the seed of men. They will seek to bring about unification by mixing the children of men, by bringing people together. Through marriage, they'll try to unify the world, and sure enough, they made many attempts. You look at even Queen Victoria. She was related to so many different people, but their alliances, their coalitions, their unity failed over and over and over again. Look at what Napoleon did in his attempt. Look what he said in his attempt to unify the world. I wish to found a European system, a European code of laws, a European judiciary, that there would be one people in Europe. But after his failure in Waterloo, in Belgium, he even said, God Almighty is much to me, is too much for me. Even Napoleon realized, I cannot overcome the prophecy of Daniel 2. God's word still stands. Can you say amen to that? Amen. You'll look at all the famous individuals and dictators and rulers that attempted to bring about a world unity, a one world empire, but they failed in their tracks over and over again. Some of them have been ruthless men, but they have failed over and over and over again. The Bible stands true. Can you say amen? amen. All these various individuals tried and tried, but they failed. The book of Daniel makes it very clear. After the Roman Empire, after the legs of iron, there will never again be a one world empire. And sure enough, that's taken place. But there was more to the prophecy. Wasn't there? There was a little bit more to the prophecy. Where are we living, by the way? The time of Babylon? Medo-Persia? Where? Right at the bottom of the feet. The proverbial toenails of time. Amen? We discovered in Daniel chapter 2, the Bible says a rock cut without man's hands, would come out of the sky and it would strike where? At the time of Babylon? No. At the time of Medio persia No. At the time of Greece? No. At the time of Rome? No. During our time. During our time. But Daniel talks about this. He actually explains what this rock represents. Is this some asteroid, asteroid X that's flying by? Is that what we need to watch out for? You think this is the way the end's going to come? No, no, no. God actually explains to Daniel what that rock represents. He actually tells him. In the days of these kings, talking about the divided world, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. God would set up his kingdom, not the time of Babylon, not the time of Medo-Persia, not the time of Greece, not the time of Rome, but the time the world will be divided. That's our time. That's the time that we're in right now. That God promises something very big, something huge that's about to happen. He promises his soon return. He promises that one day he's going to come. And that these are the times that we're living in, folks. The very times that we are now a part of. You are not talking about our grandparents' generation. We are talking about our generation. God is promising something big. He is promising that he will set up his kingdom. You're not here by coincidence, folks. I believe with all my heart. I believe that in the midst of maybe by it seems like the, the, the flyer came to you or somebody invited you or, or perhaps you saw some sign. It may seem like chance or just a fluke, but guess what? I believe the Spirit of God has called you here tonight. He's calling you here because as he stepped in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, he is stepping in your life today. He is stepping in your life today. Nebuchadnezzar never realized that the God of heaven was actually trying to communicate with him. He was so about his own self, his own life, his own plans, but he had no idea that the God of heaven was actually saying, Nebuchadnezzar, if I know the future of this world, 
I know your future too. If I know the future of these empires, I know your future too. And God was saying to Nebuchadnezzar, this self-willed king who had his own ambitions, he was saying to him, Nebuchadnezzar, I am real. I am real. Look what Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9 says. A man's heart plans his way, but the who directs his steps? Now, who do you think directed you here tonight? Wasn't a man. The Bible says the Lord directs his steps. And I believe that God has directed your steps here tonight because he wants you to understand that he is a God who not only cares for you, but he actually has a purpose and plan for your life. Can you say amen to that? Look what the Bible says in Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. God says, look, I know what I'm thinking about you. He says, I know what I'm thinking about you. You can be assured that I know how I'm feeling about you individually today. Look what it says. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. You know why? Because logically, without God, we don't have a future and a hope. And what God is promising you is what he promised to Nebuchadnezzar. I know your future. God knows your future. And he has something very special planned for each person. But guess what? You can always thwart the purposes and plans of God for your life. You can. You have a will. You have a choice. You read the story of the prodigal son. The very fact that the father didn't go chasing after him shows that God respects choice. But God has drawn you here tonight to begin a journey with him, to start something so special with him, a journey to understand him and the plans that he has for your life. So I'm going to make a challenge to you guys. As we're coming to the end. The Lord Jesus Christ is saying to you, as he said to Nebuchadnezzar, here I am. I want to work in your life. I want to fulfill my plans and powerful purposes for your life today. I want to begin it today. You know how you can start it? By saying yes to God tonight. Amen? How many people today want to say, you know what, Lord? I want to say yes to your purposes and plans for my life. Amen. Folks, I want to invite you back. I want to invite you back tomorrow night because this journey is a journey to understand who God is and to understand his plans and purposes for your life. I promise you this. You come back tomorrow, you come back tomorrow, you're going to begin to understand more and more God's beautiful purposes and plans for your life. Let's pray, church family. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the people of God here, Lord. God, I know they're your people because they came tonight. And God, you want to start something so special for them. Father, I remember that guy that I saw at the gym. He said that everybody was calling him a loser. His family was. His own wife was. His job had fired him. But Lord, I never forgot when you impressed me to go walk up to him and share with him that verse in Jeremiah 29 that God has a future with him. And that with God, there are no losers, God. I pray, Lord, that you'd bring every person back here tomorrow night as we continue with this journey. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse. 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.